When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Squarespace features an easy-to-use interface, beautiful templates, and 24-7 customer support. Right now, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code CULTURE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And by Sherry's Berries. Treat your mom to something sweet this Mother's Day with a gift from Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate start at $19.99. Visit berries.com, click on the microphone, and use the code CULTURE. That's berries.com and the promo code CULTURE. And by The Honest Company, featuring safe products for your family and home. Purchase your first bundle by Mother's Day and receive a free gift worth $20. Go to honest.com and use the promo code CULTURE. That's Honest.com and the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Heavy is the Head that Wears the Guacamole Edition. It's Wednesday, April 29th, 2015. On today's show, Wolf Hall is the sumptuous BBC adaptation of Hilary Mantel's novel. It stars Mark Rylance, and it's now on Masterpiece Theatre. And then Bruce Jenner is in the process of becoming a woman. How should we feel about what is, on the one hand, a gesture of human freedom, but also a reality TV spectacle? And finally, epic droughts, water politics, and fad foods. Will the avocado soon be extinct? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hi, Steve. Uh, Julia, I like to think that Wolf Hall is uh, kind of a version of how you overtook the editorship from plots. Is that well? I only I only watched the pilot. Oh, okay. I did read the book, but I can't ever remember the plots of things I read, even when they are history. So sure, I wore a cloak. I married eight women. Uh, (laughs) Amir Cromwell. Uh, Oh yeah! Hi, it was all Dan's idea. I'm just I'm just a pretty face on the front end of this thing. So anyway, yeah, exactly, totally accurate. I also imagine it was slower and talkier in the Slate's offices, though. Um, All right, (laughs) tell us how you really feel. (laughs) (laughs) This this bit is dying on the vine. So why don't I quickly turn to Dan Coyce? Dan, what's your what's your current title for this joint? I'm Lord Chancellor. (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Joining us is Dan Coyce, who for our purposes is maybe the culture editor of Slate now. That's correct. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, diving right in. Hillary Mantel has won the Booker Prize twice in a row for her novels about uh, Thomas Cromwell in 16th century England. The BBC has adapted Wolf Hall, the first of those two books, to the small screen. It's now come to the United States via Masterpiece Theater. And we watched. Why don't we listen to a clip? The world is not run from where you think it is, from border fortresses, even from Whitehall. The world is run from Antwerp, from Florence, from Lisbon, from wherever the merchant ships set sail off into the west. Not from castle walls, from counting houses, from the pens that scrape out your promissory notes. So believe me when I say that my banker friends and I 
will rip your life apart. All right, Dan, I'm going to start with you. It seems to me uh, from your wonderful piece on Slate that you've really connected to the material here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I really loved Hilary Mantel's books. I loved all six episodes of the BBC Two adaptation, uh, which I watched. I also love the Broadway play, both Broadway plays, parts one and part two, which are showing right now at the Winter Garden. I've been a real a Cromwell-aholic, I guess. I've given over hours, dozens of hours, scores of hours to my, of my life to the Thomas Cromwell story. Okay, so tell me why. I read the book, the first book. It was great. I read it on a like sunshiny beach. Someone told me I had to read the paper edition because on the kid you have to toggle back and forth to the uh, genealogy charts so often that trying to read the Kindle version is insufferably annoying, which proved good advice. I thought it was really well written as kind of psychological portraiture of power, like her understandings of the mechanisms of how people move and think through bureaucracies, space and time and how they accrete authority to themselves and how that does and does not line up with where government places authority. Super fascinating as a piece of writing. Intend to read the second book, Bringing Up the Bodies, as soon as I, you know, I don't know, my children go to college or something. But I was not immediately thrilled at the notion of bringing this book to the screen or the stage because to me what's – I mean the story is – the story's history. The story's there for anybody to make art out of. You know, Hilary Mantel finds a fascinating way into it through her psychological understanding of these characters. But I think she does that through a kind of writing craft that allows for interiority that did not – necessarily seemed to me a natural fit for the small screen. Now, Mark Rylance, who plays Cromwell in the episode I saw, is an extraordinary actor who has one of those faces upon which emotions seem to flicker with almost as much subtlety and nuance as one can conjure on the page. So nice casting job team. And it is good and interesting. And I, you know, in a world of unlimited time would have gobbled up all the episodes by now and probably will keep watching it. But Like, it just doesn't, this doesn't feel like a natural book to be adapted for me. It's not like she concocted some crazy new plot that had to be rendered to the screen. Like, there have been a gajillion film adaptations of various chunks of the story over the years. Why does this make good TV and or does it even make good TV, Dan? I think it does. And it does because of Thomas Cromwell. Because when you focus the story on Thomas Cromwell, or at least on Hilary Mantel's idea of Thomas Cromwell, which has some things to do with what the historical record tells us about the actual Thomas Cromwell and in other ways our inventions. It allows you to use the story to tell not just a very familiar story of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour, but to tell a, a story about the dawning of a kind of modernity, a kind of growth of capitalism. As, as that clip shows us, Thomas Cromwell is sort of posited in the books and in the shows as one of the first true modern men, the men who understand how globalization affects the world that you live in. Henry VIII is, is you know, he wants to be known by the King of France and he wants to be respected by the Pope, but he does not think about the ways that the crazy decisions he makes affect England's standing in the world and the way the crazy decisions other people make affect him and his life. And Thomas Cromwell is posited as a man who thinks not only about 
what kings do and what princes do, but what banks do and what merchants do and how all those things connect together and how if you are smart enough and if you never stop working and you never stop thinking, you can manipulate all those things to create a certain kind of place for your children and your grand- grandchildren to live. That's what I found compelling about it. I'm ha- by the way I want to say for the record I'm having a serious what he said moment right now. Brian. That was fun- <laughs> that was fantastic. I can pass over the rest of the segment in decorous silence, but let me say quickly that I have one hard and fast rule in my household. Like really it's the only it's the only black letter binding tissue of my entire marriage, which is that you must read the book before you see that film adaptation. And I haven't yet finished the book Wolf Hall, but I've started it. So I watched this, but with one eye kind of averted because uh, I can't break my marriage bond <laughs> for this show. Did that, did Henry VIII not set the example in breaking the marriage bond whenever convenient? <laughs> I, I think... Uh, you know, as a kind of negative example, he's uh, he's a pretty good paragon. But she seduced me completely with sentences like, he drops it, it whispers into the water. He will remember his first sight of the open sea, a gray wrinkled vastness like the residue of a dream. Dan, isn't it very hard to replace that on a television set? Oh, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about Wolf Hall as a text is that you can right now, if you are lucky enough to live in New York or to be visiting New York, experience two extremely different ways of interpreting this exact text. Because the show is very internal and very focused on Mark Rylance's face and watching him quietly react to things. It's candlelit. It's a little bit slow-paced. I think some people will definitely have trouble getting into it. The Broadway play, which is up now, treats it as sort of a grand, sort of almost buffoonish comedy in which no laugh line is left unjumped at and in which these sort of great sweeping historical moments are treated with pomp and grandeur and fun. It's like a big ribald entertainment in a way that the show isn't. And it suggests to me that the goal of adapting this piece was not necessarily in exploring Hilary Mantel's language, which is wondrous and amazing, but instead in exploring the different ways that she portrays this character, I think in the case of the TV adaptation, and this era in the case of the stage adaptation, which are both really great, but which both only sees on aspects of what made the book so good. And indeed, they they don't really find the language that much. Um, Dan, I have to ask, do you have a potted theory about why these books by this British author about what to probably 90% of the people who read them are relatively obscure subjects have hit some kind of nerve. What nerve is it and why did these books hit it? That's a great question. I really found Thomas Cromwell as a character an incredibly compelling dude. And I do think that she found a way to present, as you say, a very familiar story in a way that becomes so much more relatable than it ever could be. You know, I I don't think many of us feel we have much in common with Henry VIII. I don't think many of us feel we have much in common with Anne Boleyn. But I do think a lot of us feel that we have a lot in common with Tom Cromwell, who is, you know, he's a blacksmith's boy who, through perseverance and hard work and also being a genius, but also being willing to risk things all the time in the multiple games he is playing, makes a better world for himself. It's at the cost of many, 
many people lose their lives to make that better world, but it's hard to argue that the world that he envisioned was not a better one than the one that he was born into. And I find that really inspiring, like little historical side notes to the story that don't even come up in this. I find so fascinating, like the character of Rafe Sadler, who's played by Thomas Brody Sangster in this in the book, he's he's given a lot of depth. Um, in the show, he's played by Thomas Brody Sangster, and, and he is a little bit more of a cipher. It's not clear what is going on with him, but his sort of embrace of the things that Thomas Cromwell taught him, the way that Thomas Cromwell raised him from nothing and kept him alongside him throughout his life, it meant that he died at a ripe old age as the, the richest non-noble person in England, the richest commoner in the entire country, and did great good throughout his life and raised a large and happy family. And you get the impression that for all the misery that the foolishness of Henry VIII and the way that foolishness was enacted incredibly efficiently by Thomas Cromwell, for all the misery that caused many nobles in the country, in the end, he made the country a better place. I think that's a very optimistic way to view history. It maybe is not a fully accurate way to view history, but it's a very pleasurable way to view history that one dude, just by embracing a, a right way of thinking, can really change his country for the better. Mm-hmm. Can I can I float a cockamamie theory in response to Steve's question and then put it to Dan for hammering on with more facts than I have at my disposal? Do it. Okay. So That's what a leader does, Julia. <laughs> So one thing that strikes me hearing you talk about Cromwell is that we are currently in an era that fantasizes deeply about competency and efficacy. Like if you think about some of our popular entertainments of the moment, they are often entranced with this question of like, what can a person accomplish? And maybe this is just something that everybody's always been fascinated with. But, you know, if you think about Mad Men, you've got like the glorious achievements of Don Draper at every turn. If you think about The Wire, it's about how whenever somebody has a good idea, it gets thwarted inevitably by bureaucracy. I'm trying to think of some of our other shows. What you're positing here is that Thomas Cromwell found a way in the 1500s to moneyball royalty. I guess, or I'm wondering if part of what feels fresh about Mantle's work is that it's taking this sort of modern paradigm, this thread of like, how does, isn't it fun to watch a super efficacious person just get shit done? Maybe because we all have our unfinished to-do lists lying around us all the time. Like, isn't it just deeply satisfying as entertainment to watch somebody just nail their shit day after day? And is it unusual to see that in like, um, in the 1500s. All right, well, let me leap in before Dan does and just adumbrate what you've said a little bit further. Dan, isn't to piece it all together the theory that Thomas Cromwell opens up for us the era which comes to an end with Don Draper of the efficacious, perhaps Machiavellian, risk-taking man? I don't think it ends with Don Draper. I mean, I quoted Kanye in my review because I think there are real parallels there. I mean, they're obviously not intentional parallels unless Hillary Mantel is even sneakier than I think she is. But I saw them there. Julie, I agree with you. And I think that it has a lot to do with the many of us viewed history growing up as a series of great men accomplishing great things. But those great men were always the kings themselves, right? We know about Henry VIII. We know about the the amazing things that happened in his reign. We know about Elizabeth, a different kind of great man theory, great man, um, and the amazing things she accomplished. We know about the thrones, but one of the real appeals of this is showing us 
that the person that gets shit done is not the person on the throne. It's the guy standing in the corner who's listening and hearing everything you say. And seven years later, will remember exactly what you said and pin you down and crush you because of it. Those are the guys who really get shit done. And I think that appeals to our sense of how power actually works. The way as we learn, as we grow older and as we see power in action, we learn it actually works. It doesn't actually reside usually in the figurehead at the top. Sorry, Julia. Shit. It actually resides <laughs> in the in the people who who are burrowing underneath and always watching and listening and making sure that the will of the person on top is enacted with all its complexity. I think that's very appealing. All right. The show is Wolf Hall. It's on uh, PBS, on Masterpiece Theater. Check it out if you've read the books, if you haven't. Um, all right. Do come to Facebook.com uh, slash CultureFest. Tell us what your experience of the Mantel Empire has been, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia. What do we have? This episode of the Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace is simple, powerful, and beautiful with 24-7 support via live chat and email. Your website scales to look great on any device. And with the new cover pages feature, you can set up a beautiful one-page online presence in minutes. It costs only $8 a month and you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. Right now, you can try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code culture at checkout to get 10% off. Julia, can I just interject here quickly and say, I am right now going to Squarespace to do it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I need to start a stevenmetcalf.com and I've waited and waited and waited, but you've prodded me, your dulcet tones. Sweet. I'm so excited. I can't wait to see your website. All right, post it up on uh, old Facebook when you get that thing live. I will absolutely do. Awesome. Steve, I can't wait to see what you come up with. All right, so again, that's squarespace.com. Use the code CULTURE to get 10% off and to show your support for the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Squarespace, build it beautiful. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. All right, well, we're joined by Brian Lauder, Slate's associate editor. Brian, welcome back to the show. Hi, Steve. Uh, it's great to have you on. Let me kick this to you as quickly as possible. Um, but uh, obviously, a big uh, headline this past week has been that Bruce Jenner granted an interview to Diane Sawyer on ABC, in which he finally and unequivocally announced that he was transitioning uh, to a woman. Uh, and um, I'm very curious to know what you both make of that as a milestone, and also how you feel uh, both Diane Sawyer and ABC handled this announcement. Why don't you take it away? Sure. Well, I, I, first, I'd just like to say that I'm glad this interview finally happened. Um, it has been teased for what feels like months and months now. Um, Jenner was speculated about in the tabloids uh, and other press for a long time, and that was something that we at Slate even had to deal with occasionally, um, people sort of speculating about whether or not he was transitioning. Uh, so it, it's just a relief to finally have him saying his own situation and sp- sort of speaking his own truth. And indeed, as you said, he came out as transgender. We're still using male pronouns, we should say here, because that's what he's requested. Uh, even though he identifies as female, he's requested that we don't switch those yet. So um, we're going to continue using he and him uh, until such time as he tells us to, to change, right? But yeah, I thought the interview was really, really well done, actually. Approaching it, it, it felt like it could have been 
I don't know, like very strange or awkward or offensive. And, and a lot of people had trepidation about that. But uh, in the end, I think that they, the Diane Sawyer and ABC did a really excellent job of both hearing Jenner's story and letting him speak for himself, but also presenting the larger context of trans issues. They often would cut away to these little thumbnail sketches of, you know, the violence that trans people face or the terminology that trans people request and other things like that. And, and I thought the, the show did a wonderful job of, of balancing those things in a way that I felt like would be pretty accessible even if this were your first encounter uh, mm-hmm. with trans issues at all. Yeah, and the f- very first context that they gave was exactly who Jenner was. So, so many people are familiar uh, with him from reality TV and his association with the Kardashians, who are his stepdaughters. But uh, they don't remember, as I remember quite vividly, that he was the quote-unquote world's greatest athlete. He won the decathlon in the 1976 Olympics. I think he won it, as I recall, going away. He was extremely telegenic, uh, fantastically Olympian uh, in almost the original sense of the word. You know, in some respects, a paragon of traditional masculinity. How important do you think it is that such a person is going to act as a lot of this country's first introduction to the concept of switching genders. I think that's really interesting. I I am of the generation that does not know him that way. I I know him as a a reality figure, essentially. Um, So it was, I think it was important for them to give that background. And yeah, I mean, he he was indeed uh, this sort of paragon of masculinity. And the show went Uh, I think out of its way to sort of show that in a certain sense. And I think it's important because it shows you that anyone can be trans, whether or not they seem to fit into their assigned gender uh, that they were born with, that doesn't mean anything necessarily, right? Just because he's super masculine does not mean that he can't feel like a woman uh, and, and want to live as a woman. And so I think it was it was actually to the show's credit to sort of insist that we we understand and, and sort of feel that dissonance and, and then accept it in the end. Absolutely. I also thought it was striking. I mean, the show very explicitly pitched itself to people who remember Bruce Jenner from the Wheaties box and haven't really heard much about this trans thing. Like the tone was very remedial trans info in a way, but that's where a lot of the culture is. And I, it was interesting to observe that and observe the kind of rhetorical and tactical choices that they made in the telling of Bruce Jenner's story. But I also think for the larger, you know, issue of trans rights, it's extraordinary and fascinating to have this particular figure be an introduction or an entree into this world. You know, the interview took care to note that, of course, he has tons of money. He's a Republican who lives in Malibu. He uh, is in, you know, for all that he's suffered, he's also fundamentally in control of his own destiny and choices because of his financial comfort in a way that he and the interview acknowledged and that is not the case for many um, people dealing with similar issues. But I think in some ways that helped make the story maybe more accessible or powerful for people who might be less open to or less familiar with these issues. Yeah. You know, but there were a number of moments where the interview really took care to kind of ground his experience in sort of more familiar American boyhood and masculinity. They talked about how he played with trucks when he was a boy, how he was athletic. There were some graphics that came up on the screen with Diane Sawyer's voice behind them that said things like, gender and sexuality are different, (laughs) you know, in ways that felt a little goofy, but also perhaps useful. You know, there were some quick asides. Being transgender is not a mental illness, experts say. You could hear the audience, the intended audience, throughout the video, throughout the interview, but in a way that I th- I thought worked. I don't know, Dan and Steve, whether you felt that those touches were over the top or appropriate. 
They were a very useful reminder, I thought, to me of two things that I sometimes forget. One, that that this issue is really new to a huge swath of the American population that you know many of us know trans people or have thought a lot about these issues or face them a lot in our lives. And so it's a lot of these questions are very familiar, but but in fact, to much of America, they are not. And it was also a useful reminder that those exact people are the exact people who watch Diane Sawyer interview people on TV. And the show I thought was very canny and in, in making the connection between those two populations and the huge Venn diagram overlap between those two populations and making sure it pitched this message at the people it knew would be watching. I think it was a helpful side benefit to ABC that a lot of other people watched too, people who already knew a lot about trans issues but who were interested to see how a, a network would deal with them. The episode got huge ratings, but it was clearly meant for that TV audience, the audience that still tunes in for TV news and TV interviews. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the stat was something like only 8% of Americans say they know someone who's trans, who identifies as trans. And so yeah. there, it's it's easy, it's indeed very easy for us to, to sort of imagine that this stuff is, is, I think you said, maybe a little over the top or goofy, Julia. But I, I think it's, it's new, very new for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, they did sort of hit the gender is different from sexuality thing a lot uh, over, over the course of the show a number of times. But that's hard to keep in mind, even for someone like me, who I write about this stuff every day. Like, it, it is easy to sort of conflate those two things because they are related in a certain sense, right? But, like, it's important to keep those distinctions. So I really appreciated the show for going into some areas that are kind of complex and, like, difficult to keep straight in your mind at all times. Well, and I think Diane Sawyer was, you could sense her either articulating or performing a kind of confusion that gave her audience permission to be confused but not curi- but not incurious or dismissive. Yeah, there know? was the, her folksy, like, you know, but Bruce, like, people are going to be confused by that. Like, she, <laughs> she, yeah, she did that. Like, you know, it was a little <laughs> shticky, but, but in some ways I think that, that it worked. I don't know. I mean, I came away. I'm also someone who, you know, I don't know very closely any trans people. I have no good friends who are trans. I've, you know, I've met various people. I know glancingly various people over the years, but I don't have any dear friends who've gone through this. And for all that I'm like dissecting the semiotics of the audience this was pitched to, it was useful for me too to like hear at length the narrative of a person who's gone through this. And, you know, a very singular person, a person who whose life has been admirable in many ways and also just confusing for those of us who have mixed feelings about the Kardashian show. I also, <laughs> did you guys notice how they kept referring to the show as that reality show? <laughs> I think they only called it the Kardashians like once. I wonder if, is that just like an intranetwork beef? It was super confusing to me that they wouldn't mention the show that often. Do you, did you guys notice that? I noticed I that. Did, yeah. I, they, they, there was an explicit plug at one point for Bruce Jenner's upcoming reality show this summer on E! as Diane said it. So I think that that must have been maybe a condition of the interview. But yes, mm-hmm. they didn't seem... I mean, the... Is that it be promoting his new show, not his old shows right. on well, other networks or something? Well, and it was interesting to see the sort of kid gloves with which Diane Sawyer, uh, a kind of paragon of a certain kind of reality TV, which to me is not that distinguishable from the kind of reality TV that Keeping Up with the Kardashians is from the perspective of someone who just doesn't watch TV news or TV reality that much. It was interesting to see the way she handled that. She was interested in the Kardashians. She was interested in his life with them, but she had a real visible sort of distaste 
for the show itself, which I think also mirrored that of of the majority of her audience. I couldn't Mm. quite tell, though. I, I couldn't tell if she actually had the distaste or there was some kind of contractual thing that was making her call it that reality show. <laughs> nose wrinkle. That, Could have been both. That telegraphed Contra- distaste. Contractual in a nose wrinkle. Uh, let me say that I find a little bit of that kind of average person minstrelsy for which Diane Sawyer has become known <laughs> over the years extremely suspicious. I also brought a couple of other suspicions to this interview, but it, uh, but we arrive at a happy ending, but let me voice them first. The first is that I was suspicious about his motives. This is a person who's lived inside one television set or another since 1976, if not even a little earlier than that. He has spent his life performing selfhood in one way or another for TV cameras. Was this going to be yet another somewhat exploitative television performance? And then my second suspicion actually goes a little bit deeper, and it gets to the issue of gender and sexuality. It seems to me back when I was in college and taking a woman's studies class, a very interesting distinction was brought up between drag and transgender identity because drag performs sexuality and gender as a way of completely destroying them as preset categories, whereas transgender identity posits gender as a kind of metaphysical identity. And the funny thing was I was so moved by his testimonial that both of these things became quickly irrelevant to me in a way. Because first of all, I believe that he believes that at a completely transcendental level, he is a woman. That that something that goes beyond his received biology is different from what that received biology phenotypes him as. And that not only convinced me that he was sincere, but for some people, the difference between drag and hormonal therapy and surgery is all the difference in the world, even though it's very hard to explain in fully satisfying scientific or philosophical terms that there was a depth of total sincerity that made me think what he was doing was kind of heroic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, it's it's true that some, and we've written about this in Outward before, uh, it's true that sometimes drag, which uh, which I would define as an art form first, a, a form of theater really, uh, is, is a way that some trans people explore uh, their gender and eventually move on from doing that into actually identifying full-time uh, as women or, or men and dressing that way and living that way. Um, but they are d- distinct. I mean, I think I think it's safe to say. Oh, that they're totally. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, Brian. They're totally distinct. Right, right. But, but one, you know, postmodernists might seize on sure. drag as a way of saying it shows us that all gender is performative. That's right. Right. And that's the exact opposite of what Bruce Jenner or someone who wants to switch their gender is saying. Well, indeed, he's been, he, as he I think eloquently pointed out, he's been performing. He's been performing masculinity his whole life when the more natural thing would have been femininity, right? Uh, so, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that was part of what was striking for me about watching the interview is that I agree that there was an underlying sincerity to him sort of through the layers of, you know, TV makeup and regardless of gender, just the TV makeup looks <laughs> super pancakey and weird and his plastic surgery and his, um, you know, reality show veneer there was just a sincerity there, the truth of which, you know, you couldn't look away from. And I do, you know, there are things that are kind of intellectually confounding about the rise of transgender rights that I still struggle to get my head around sometimes. I mean, I think that you've put your finger on it, Steve. The one thing that is liberating to embrace about gay rights is the sense of like, 
everybody can kind of define their own their own universe, their own world, their own sense of gender, their own sense of identity. Like, let's not be too bound into traditional roles. And there is this almost conservatism intellectually about the idea of inherent gender identities that is a little bit hard to square with like a post-gender world where anyone can do anything. And I think that the kind of liberalism of any human rights movement butts up against the sense of like, you know, I have a womanly way of decision making or I, you know, he at one point, Jenner says in the interview that he feels he was womanly in his fathering in some way. And, you know, as someone who's a parent and a mom and, you know, sometimes gets questions about how my gender impacts my my life or my big fancy job or whatever, I, you know, I tend to be someone who's like, I don't know, I'm just doing it as a person. Like, I don't really want to think about it as in terms of the gender I am and how that affects what I do. Now, of course, one thing I think you recognize from seeing an interview like this is that's that's a real privilege. I don't have to think about it because it's just kind of easy for me in a way that you can see life has not been easy for him. There, there's sort of all of these kind of intellectual loops you can run your head through as you start to think about the rise of this rights movement and what it means. But that's, I think, why an interview like this is important, because you just you're like, OK, but right. People mostly you just need to listen to people and yeah. what their lived experience is and design a world that works for them. Well, and I think you hit on something important there. I mean, to me, I've always thought that sexuality is not that hard to like grapple with. Right. It's like you under we all understand unless we're asexual, we all understand what it is like to be attracted to another human being. So even if you're straight, you can pretty easily, I think, get to a place where you say, okay, you know, a gay guy is attracted to another gay guy. I understand what attraction is like. I don't think though those of us who are not trans understand that fundamental dysphoria, that sense of like not feeling at home uh, in our bodies or the way that we have been gendered throughout our lives. And I think that's at the root of the, of the difficulty with sort of intellectually understanding all this stuff because you just we just can't experience, you or I, Julia, and, and the rest of us, we can't on this podcast, we we can't do that. And so uh, I think it is it is best, I mean, we can think about the, the intellectual questions and talk about them, and that's that's great and I think important. Uh, but at the end of the day, listening is really the most important thing, uh, and, and that's what this interview invited, I think. Did you guys feel as though, from, a, from the standpoint of a television viewer, there was something odd or surprising about the decision of Jenner not to reveal her, as he said? That to have this this separate, even a separately pronounced identity of her that he has been embracing in some aspects of his life, but that some people in his life haven't seen a person that some people in his life, like his mother, for, for example, have not met yet. And he he went out to dinner with Diane Sawyer as her, wearing a dress that we saw when he took it off the rack in his closet. But the show itself did not present her to us. What did you guys think of that decision? It very much felt like his decision. I mean, it didn't. I think if it had felt like in part two of our interview next mm-hmm. week, the dress on that body that won that medal, you know, like that would have felt exploitative. But it seemed like they were being extremely sensitive to be guided by his own wishes and his own journey in this regard. And I think that's, you know, it's hard to assess. You don't really know a person. But he seemed almost like he was kind of saying, farewell to his old public identity and wanted to separately say hello in a new public identity at some time to be determined. It did feel like there was going to be a second interview 
even if they didn't te- tease it in an exploitative seeming manner. Or maybe the show this summer is, is, is right. About it's that. the show this summer. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, the show yeah, is what will reveal her. I mean, I right. think the th- interesting yeah. thing about that to me was that it it points out one of the uh, sort of not criticisms of this interview, but one of the things that certain uh, writers have been just cautioning people to keep in mind, which is, and we've mentioned it, generous privilege, his his wealth and his ability to do this transition in a way that it's very much controlled by him. And so he's able, because of that, to sort of, it sounds like he's going to disappear for a while, maybe undergo some procedures. I, I don't know what all he's going to do, but but it sounds like he's sort of going to go uh, away and then come reemerge as this, as this new person. And that's wonderful for him, and that, that sounds like actually a very nice way to do it. But I think most trans people aren't so fortunate to be able to do that because they have to show up at work. They have to show up at work. Or... They have they don't have the money to do all the surgeries at once, or to have you know to have like a very carefully planned out mm-hmm. medical uh, itinerary if they if they're going to do that. Um, yeah, time to the rollout of a new reality it, TV show. I mean, maybe we yeah. can stipulate that all three things can be true at once: that transgender rights are human rights and non-negotiable; that uh, Bruce Jenner. Uh, in his total metaphysical self, is a woman, and uh, reality TV is exploiting this in a way that's uh, sure. repulsive. Um, one other shout-out I want to do very quickly is, given how new this is to the majority, um, by implication, the majority of Diane Sawyer's audience, isn't it amazing that the 1979 novel, World According to Garp, featured an ex-NFL player who's become a woman, Roberta Muldoon, then played with with real dignity in the movie Garp by John Lithgow. And it's, as I recall, now I haven't seen it or read it in a long time, but as I recall, there was something so matter-of-fact about the presence of this, you know, again, paragon of athletic masculinity uh, becoming a woman. I mean, she was nothing but a completely human and sympathetic character. So uh, good on John Irving. I had totally forgotten about that plot line. My utter, my deep and utter ability to forget every plot of everything I've ever read. <laughs> I remember only emotional valences and a general assessment of the work, but I'm so bad on plot points, I'd completely forgotten that. The one last thing I want to say, I know we probably need to wrap up, but I, you know, there's also kind of a convention in how journalists and the press should deal with trans people, which is that you should respect the new identity the, the or the newly public identity, however you want to frame it, to the degree where you don't ask questions about the past or the transition or talk about the person's um, born incarnation or whatever else. And I, you know, I think kind of the journalistic conventions around that are very much up for debate and have to have something to do with newsworthiness uh, and and our conversation that the journalism world will continue to have. You know, I do think that kind of respect for the wishes of the subjects is important, but I think it's really valuable for the country for someone to publicly talk about the process and the transition. I can respect that certain people would prefer to just be where they've gotten to in their process and not have to rehash what they went through to get there all the time. But I think in understanding what this feels like what gender dysphoria is. As you say, Brian, because it's so alien, because it's not just like, okay, it's I understand the verb, it's just a different object for mm-hmm. the verb. It's more like I don't this verb is from another planet. I don't even I I I don't I don't know. I can't relate what to what this would feel like. Having people who are willing to talk about their process and what they've gone through, I think will be valuable for people as they come to understand this. And so I you know, they use the word brave a number of times in the interview and that's the sort of thing that when TV people like Diane Sawyer do it can feel a little overheated but I really felt that it was warranted in this case. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point and I think that the thing to remember always is that it 
it's wonderful when people like Jenner and others want to talk about all of that stuff that you just mentioned. And I think you're exactly right that it is important to hear those stories and that helps people grow in understanding and relatability. Uh, but the thing is not to expect all trans people to be willing to answer those kinds of questions. And I think that's what a lot of that uh, sort of sort of the finger wagging maybe we've seen over the past year or so about how the media should cover these issues has been just uh, almost a little anxious about the fact that maybe if you if if certain viewers see one person doing that they're going to think that all trans people want to talk that way and so that's that's i think a little bit of why there's a little bit of the 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 overcaution in those things but i think as long as as the person wants to speak about all that stuff it's great and it's and it's very important and you know Sawyer i think talked about it very respectfully it wasn't like you know what are your genitals which is like the, the worst question you could possibly ask it was it was very carefully done and respectfully done and i think that's what most trans people want it's just it's just the same respect that you would uh, extend to anyone else about their personal life that that's the same thing so it's just it's not it's the, the important thing is not to treat trans people as any group as a monolith but as individuals with different desires and uh, comforts with privacy and all that kind of thing for sure uh, well brian louder thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about bruce jenner yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. We're very curious to hear what our listeners' uh, reaction to this interview have been and what your experience with the subject is. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we got? This week, the Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Sherry's Berries. Uh, growing up, your mom always let you have the last bite says the copy from Sherry's Berries. And I can attest that this is true in my family. My mom always let me have the last potato on her plate. But then she would sing a song that a friend of hers uh, growing up would sing, which she claimed to be an Irish classic, which went... (laughs) Me singing during the ad may not be what Sherry's Berries is paying for, but this is a tradition in my family. (laughs) Which went, A mother's love's a blessing. You'll miss her when she's gone. <laughs> and it went on in that vein. So love her while she's living. Um, so anyway, there was a little bit of guilt that came with that last crunchy potato in my family. Nevertheless, my mom was a great mom. I'm excited to get her a kick-ass present for Mother's Day. And our listeners have an option to get their moms a gift from Sherry's Berries. Treat your mom to something sweet, a great gift that will make her mouth water. Uh, for Slate Culture Gap Fest listeners, Sherry's Berries is offering giant, freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99. That's over a 40% savings off the usual price. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and type in the promo code culture. I tried some Sherry's Berries last week that they were delivered, I think, the batch for Dan Coyce, who also talked about Sherry's Berries on the parenting podcast, uh, to the D.C. office, and I indulged in a berry dipped in dark chocolate and nuts, which was Excellent, fresh, tasty, sweet, and delicious. And I think that any mother would be excited to get these berries. Here is the only way to get this amazing deal. Visit berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and type in culture. Again, berries.com, click on the microphone and enter our code culture to deliver your mom some delicious treats for Mother's Day. And perhaps for Stahl, her singing you a sad and plaintive Irish ditty. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, digging in. 
Have You Eaten Your Last Avocado is the title of a new piece in New York Magazine by the wonderful uh, journalist Adam Sternberg. It seems to me, Julia, that this story is really about the convergence of several pretty obvious twains. First, the global demand, as Sternberg points out, for avocados has risen rather precipitously in recent years, in part because of Chipotle, in part because of increased uh, consumption of Mexican food, in part because it's a healthy fat food, according to certain fad diets. The other twain, however, is the water crisis in California. California, and it takes an enormous amount of water to create an avo- an American avocado. Uh, has your avocado consumption gone up, and what do you make of the story? Can I just ask first, what's that word you were using, twain? Yeah, the convergence of the twain. You've never heard this? Like never the twain shall meet? Right, but in this yeah. case, the twain are meeting. But, just, but doesn't, exactly. twa- doesn't twain just mean two? So wouldn't one of the twain be an ain or something? Well, I mean, I'm taking slight poetic license, which... With what I'm sure you know is a Thomas Hardy poem called The Convergence of the Twain, which is about the Titanic hitting the iceberg. So saying several twains means that we've got, I don't know, several pairs of things that are all going to collide on an epicenter. All right. It looked to me like you were talking about individual parts of one pair. But I will answer your question. I have started eating more avocado in recent years. And I do enjoy it. And when I read this piece and saw the striking layout of it, I thought, oh, no, no more avocado. I think pulling back from this, what the piece is, a journalistic effort to get people to care one whit about climate change and to understand how climate change will affect us eventually, maybe sooner than we think. And as much as I enjoyed the story, it seemed... That just seems like a futile effort regardless. It's like until there actually isn't enough food and until avocados actually cost $15, then people will start to care. That's my callous view. I didn't feel quite so callous about it. I thought it it was very effective at what it did, which was to attempt to remind us of a different time in food culture when something like the avocado, if it was available in your grocery store, would only be available two months out of the year, say. And it would be a little bit pricey and it would be a little bit weird and you wouldn't know quite what to do with it. To remind us that we, how much it has transformed, that that vision of a grocery store in which things are only available when they're in season somewhere nearby is long gone. And that the possible result of climate change among many, many other things, the most likely immediate result of climate change for people like us who are not farmers and who shop at fancy grocery stores is that we may soon return to that vision of a grocery store in which things are available only when they're in season nearby unless you are willing to pay some insane premium for them the way you now must pay an insane premium if you want a jar of pine nuts. But I didn't take the story to be quite that simple because I don't think the argument was avocados were cheap and everywhere in olden times, you know, olden times being, I don't know what, the 1960s. I thought the argument was more that that was a moment where we were kind of pre-global food culture, like not just pre-global food distribution, but pre-global food consumption. I mean, I grew up in New England, in Boston, and this is in part thanks to the particularities of my own family and the way my parents thought about food, but we like never ate out. We only ate what my parents cooked, and they cooked like, I don't know, Northern European food. Like I ate Mexican food, I don't know, twice before I was 20. Like, I'd never, there never did an avocado cross my doorstep as a child. And I don't know if that's because my parents 
didn't know what they were because you couldn't get them in Boston. But I feel like part of why you didn't see a ton of avocado in Boston had to do with the fact that, like, Boston as a culture hadn't really discovered Mexican food and there wasn't a ton of it and there wasn't a ton of demand for it in a lot of neighborhoods. And so it's not – I don't think it's a return necessarily. Um, it I feels don't think like Dan it, said it – I don't think believe that that's what he said, though. I think what he was saying was because we didn't have a fully globalized, integrated food system – you know, it was basically seasonal and also food culture made it a relative rarity or a somewhat exotic addition to a normal American diet. And that that has changed simultaneous with the drought. And, right. The twain uh, have changed simultaneously. <laughs> right. They it's, are it's food simultaneously culture. changing twain. <laughs> right. Our food culture goes hand in hand with the fact that these things become more and more available. As they become more available, they enter our diets. It's, I mean... People growing up in Boston now, with with some exceptions, obviously, are not growing up eating the same way that you ate in Boston then. And that's because both food culture and the global food chain have changed so dramatically. And part of the argument of this piece is that it's very possible that we will see them changing back or at least see the way that food is shipped and managed changing back. I guess I'm just arguing against changing back. I'm just saying not changing back, but changing again, because changing to a world where suddenly we do have global tastes, or at least a certain set of people with a, you know, amount of kind of money and cosmopolitanism at their disposal can say like, oh, I love soba noodles. And I'd like, you know, let me go to my American suburban grocery store and I'd like some tortilla chips and some avocado because I'm going to make homemade guacamole and I have modern Joffrey's cookbook. So I'd like some, you know, rare spices because I'm going to make some Indian food. And like there's there's a cosmopolitanism to the taste of the American food sophisticate right now that makes it pretty exciting to eat as an American food sophisticate adjacent or whatever we want to classify ourselves as here on the show. But I think a change, the change that's coming will be different than just locavorism because there will be an awareness of the things that we don't have. It's always interesting in these debates to think about which are the variables that are held constant and which are the ones that are allowed to flux, right? And the reason why this converging twain is interesting is that American consumers think that all three variables somehow are going to remain somewhat constant, which is the ability to grow these things, the ability to consume them, and the ability to consume them year-round, that is, and their price. And these things are, are not constant, and yet the one that we're having the most trouble making fluid, even in this conversation, is their cheap and ready availability. So finally, the thing that's going to express itself in a way that's inexorable is, is as Dan says, is price. I mean, that, that, that simply is going to have to be what happens. It's going to be way more expensive to grow them. There are going to be fewer of them. And as, so long as demand stays constant, they're going to become expensive and exotic. God forbid that before the price action expresses itself, we actually do something environmentally sound and pre-planned. But of course, that's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't relish that this is the mechanism by which we start to care about the environment. And I think that's why this is a canny assignment, because I think the, oh, man, I might not be able to have avocado with my eggs in the morning anymore. Realization does bring home the effects of the drought in California in the way that a thousand pieces about the drought in California, especially if you don't live in California, are hard to process. You're like, I don't know what it was. I don't ever spend any time in the farmlands of California. I don't know what it was like when it was wet. And it sounds like it's drier now. Like, it's hard to really grok what that means, I think. And so I think this is useful framing, but it is, it is fundamentally dismaying that 
the sad polar bears a strand adrift on the ice flows. I mean, whatever. We care about them a little bit too because they're cute. But the just the general degradation of the world is. Should we be less cheering catchy. this on? Then I mean, should we be cheering on the the coming incredible overpricing of avocados and all the other things that we have shipped in to the East Coast or wherever we live from faraway places? Is there some argument to be made that what we should really be hoping for is for gourmet foods like this to become so unsustainable that we can no longer afford them because that is the thing that will make people like us who might actually who have huge carbon footprints and might actually do something about it that might change well not just i mean not just food the foodie angle is sort of very particular to new york magazine and its audience but like i don't know we could tax gasoline or energy use at at rates that actually you know (laughs) nudged us in here here socially environmentally conscious manners like that is what would do it right that's what would make people care is when you know suddenly it shows up in your your weekly budgeting, right? Right, and those and those. It's important to point out that those taxes are non-market mechanisms because the market itself will not rectify the climate patterns that we're now stuck with. The problem, I think, Dan, with waiting for price action to take effect and scarcity value to raise the prices of cherished, you know, foodie items like avocados. The problem with waiting for that to happen is the market can respond by trying to keep demand and price constant by expanding the carbon footprint of how something and where something is grown. So for example, people develop a taste for grass-fed beef as opposed to corn-fed or feed-fed beef. It's less marbled, it's less fatty, it's healthier, and some people prefer the taste. That's great. So what happens? More old growth forest needs to be buzzed down in order to keep the price of that meat uh, constant even as demand rises in order to graze more cows on grass, which is environmentally disastrous outcome. My worry is that if you wait for price action, providers will do everything to keep price constant and demand high, which means building out more artificial agricultural uh, environments which feed into the vicious cycle of global warming. So it means then that until the situation gets as dire as it will be in California one year from now, nothing will happen. And by then it is too late. And and, and avocados will stay the same price. So people will think nothing is wrong. That's my incredibly negative, pessimistic. No, uh, I think there's something to that. I also think with, uh, you know, there's so much emphasis on, oh, well, as long as you don't have to open a package, as long as it's not processed, as long as you're just eating, you know, something that came ripe from a stem, you're probably eating fairly healthfully for yourself that makes you feel virtuous in a way that makes you not necessarily think as much about where those things go come from, right? I mean, there's a line in the piece about how a lot of the avocado crop is now grown in a part of Mexico that's run by a drug cartel. And the piece quotes someone who cites the idea of blood avocados, basically, that there's like much human suffering that goes into and is the result of where maybe a third of the avocados in the world come from. And it's hard to, I don't know, somehow the notion of the blood diamond and the notion of making horrible ethical choices and decisions to market some like glittering useless beautiful object that rich people adorn themselves with to you know it's so like Cruella de Vil right but to attach a similar kind of ethics around like some sweet virtuous little piece of of fruit with its with its good fats and its omega whatever's like it's just hard it's harder to grok the ways in which the the food economy that produces sweet little morsels like that could be just as nefarious as as some of the other mechanisms that we're more used to being critical of. 
All right. Well, the piece is Have You Eaten Your Last Avocado? It's by Adam Sternberg in New York Magazine. Go check it out at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other, other sponsor. Julia, what do we got? Steve, our show is sponsored this week by The Honest Company. As parents, we all want to give our kids the healthiest start in life, but that is not always so easy on a day-to-day basis when you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Honest.com changes the way that we take care of our kids in our homes by offering responsible and safe household products you can trust. Take, for instance, Honest Diapers. They're ultra-soft and super-absorbent with cute prints, and they're made of plant-based and sustainable materials. Purchase your first bundle before Mother's Day, and they'll send you a free aromatic soy candle worth $20. Just go to Honest.com and use the promo code CULTURE at checkout, and you'll get one of Honest's most popular items free. That's Honest.com and use the promo code CULTURE. All right, Steve, let's endorse. All right, moving on. Now is the moment in our show where we endorse. Dan, what do you got? I am endorsing a quarterly comics monograph called Frontier. It is a quarterly, it's sort of a zine that you can subscribe to, uh, and it's published by the San Francisco comics publisher Youth in Decline. And each issue is just one single longish story from a single cartoonist. Recent issues have included some of my favorite young creators, uh, people like Sam Alden and Emily Carroll, really, really great young cartoonists who are doing super interesting work. The latest issue, issue number seven, is my favorite so far. It is a very creepy story of an internet meme gone mad, uh, written and illustrated by a cartoonist named Jillian Tamaki, called Sex Coven. And uh, once again, the the zine is called Frontier, and you can find it, you can subscribe to it uh, by going to youthindecline.com slash frontier. Oh, that sounds very cool. All right, Julia, what do you got? I have a belated Earth Day endorsement, which is that uh, Heather Murphy, a former photo editor here at Slate, now at the New York Times, tweeted on Earth Day about her favorite Chrome extension for her Chrome internet browser. It's called EarthView from Google Maps. And when you install it, anytime you open a new tab in your browser, which I do approximately 347 times per day, you get a freaking gorgeous photograph of some place on the planet. It's it's almost abstract. They look kind of, sometimes they look like Rothko's. Sometimes they look like strange serpentine rivers. A couple times I've recognized them. I got Madison Square Garden and uh, a funny little um, like highway turnoff in Wasi, France. I don't know how to say that without Dana here. Uh, and I was like, wait a minute, isn't that where the airport is? And I scrolled out and sure enough, it was in the middle of, of, the, um, of Charles de Gaulle. This is a gorgeous, I highly recommend it, be super unproductive because basically now every time I try to open a new tab, there's like a little map at the bottom, a little globe that says where it is. But you you only have like the, the zoom in and then the map for orientation. So it'll be like somewhere in the Western United States or you know, somewhere in Afghanistan, that's all you know. But then if you click on the map, it actually pulls up it up in Google Maps with the Earth View chosen so that you can kind of zoom in and out and see like, whoa, that's, wow, North Texas really looks crazy. Or one time I saw something that looked like a strange thing I flew over and had been unable to identify in the Western desert. And then it turned out to just be like a, some kind of off-ramp of near Salt, uh, Great Salt Lake in Utah. I have spent so much time with this thing since I installed it. It's basically ruining my life, but it's also filling me with so much joy that I insist that you all download it also. The other thing I'll say about it is that I love flying. I love being in airplanes, and I love surveying the landscape from above. And most of these 
feel like they're at that height, like you're in a you're in a plane close enough to to really wonder about what's below. It's not it's not kind of like the space station view. It's the airplane view or bird's eye view, maybe literally. And um, they're also very clearly selected for excellence. Like you rarely get a dud or just a bunch of parking lot. Um, and you also never get the ocean. So they've they've clearly edited it in some way. I wonder if they're like selecting for high contrast or someone's actually gone through and cropped them or whether it's totally random. I'm not sure. But um, or maybe the earth is just beautiful. Anyway, Earth View from Google Maps, the Chrome extension. It's extraordinary. Bang. All right. Let me preface my endorsement by saying that it takes a stick of dynamite to get my older daughter out of uh, her bed, out from in front of her iPad mini and downstairs to the basement to watch a movie with the entire family, which we're trying to do semi-ritually, semi-occasionally. And uh, just the sheer amount of cajoling, bullying, threatening, bribing uh, is insane. And then you have to be confident if you're going to do that, that once in front of the movie, she's not immediately going to pronounce it boring relative to the social media enticements on her handheld device. So I th- I want to shout out to three films that have been quite successful in this regard that entertain pretty much all of us uh, to some degree. The first was the rom-com that Julia had said years ago was quite good. We really enjoyed it, definitely, maybe. You can actually drag a nine-year-old through that movie without having to cover her eyes or ears um, more than maybe once. The second one was the movie about a boy, which is the White's Brothers adaptation of the Nick uh, Hornby novel. It is a terrific, terrific movie. It's not only funny and deft and sexy and enjoyable. It's actually beautiful and beautifully felt. It's, it's, there are some genuinely heartbreaking moments and, and, and deeply felt moments in that movie. It is, it's gorgeous. It's, it is among the best performances that Hugh Grant has ever given. And then the third is, um, for all the times that I'm accused of being a out of touch parody of a high culture snob, every now and then I like to trot my, my wide release credentials uh, in front of our listenership and I for the first time I finally watched the Pirates of the Caribbean movie the first one the Gore Verbinski uh, first installment and I just thought it was delightful I mean it is what it is it's written by the guy who wrote Shrek he's a very gifted screenwriter and uh, he brought amazing wit and chops to it it's just a fun swashbuckle with um, Johnny Depp essentially imitating Keith Richards through the entirety of the film but to hilarious effect we all really liked it all right. Um, Dan, thanks so much for filling in. It was really, really pleasurable. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Is your head heavy from wearing the guacamole? or? Well, you're the host. You All the guacamole is smeared on your head today. <laughs> yeah, no way. You're the boss lady. As on toast, Steve Metcalf, the guacamole <laughs> is smeared on you. <laughs> Instagram it. Oh, there we go. Uh, all right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us as always at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht, our managing producer. And this week, our engineer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply our twitter feed is at slate cult fest for julia turner and dan poise and Stephen metcalf thank you so much for joining us we'll see you next week i don't know to know with no next door she's been